0: And each time I've been accused of bias. So first I had bias against laparoscopic surgery. Then I had bias against robotic surgery in favor of laparoscopic surgery. And then I had bias in in favor of THME versus robotic surgery. So I I felt that if I uh, pissed off everyone, then I must be doing something right. And and that must demonstrate that I'm actually an objective person.
1: Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only master classes on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment of both the surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human.
2: This week we were joined by Dr. Sunil Patel. Dr. Patel is a colorectal surgeon in Kingston, Ontario. The group in Kingston is one of the few general surgery groups in Canada that has really introduced robotics into their practice, and we wanted to understand both why and how they utilize robotics in their group. Dr. Patel has also done some fascinating research into the topic of spin in surgical research, and he walks us through the concept of spin and how the astute reader can avoid being fooled by it. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback, so email us at podcast.cjs
1: at gmail.com.
0: I, I grew up in uh, London, Ontario. I went to undergrad and medical school there, as well as did general surgery training in London. I went and did uh, a fellowship in uh, New York City, which was a combined fellowship between um, New York Presbyterian Hospital and Memorial Sloan Kettering. I started at uh, Kingston in, in Queens uh, in, I think it was the end of 2015, and have been here ever since. So I have enjoyed my time in Kingston so far, and uh, it's been a, a really great experience.
1: I'm curious, what, what was your fellowship like in, in New York? That's a, that's a pretty powerful combo. And, and I'm also curious what led you to Queens coming out of New York? Yeah, so New York was a, a
0: great spot. I had done uh, um, a master's degree in London, England at the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And that, I did that part way through my training, my residency training. And after doing that, I really was motivated to, do fellowship in a a big kind of metropolis. Going from London, Ontario to London, England was uh, quite the uh, eye-opener. I was really keen to do a fellowship in a place like New York. I I was also quite keen to do a fellowship in the US. Uh, I think as some of your previous guests have talked about, the training there, especially for things like robotics and and innovative surgical care, I thought there was more opportunities in the US. So I I was quite keen to do that. And it it was just a a good mix uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital um, The fellowship there was started by uh, Dr. Uh, Milsom, uh, who's one of the pioneers in laparoscopic surgery. Uh, And when I went there and and kind of interviewed, I I felt a connection to him and his program. I was really impressed with that. And I was also really uh, excited to think about doing training at Sloan Kettering, which, as you know, is of one of the preeminent uh, cancer hospitals in the world and they had a very strong uh, robotics program so to me it was kind of ideal to do uh, a cross between laparoscopic and robotics at the two institutions with the intent to always come back to uh, Canada. I I knew that robotics was probably not something that would be a focus of my career at least early on Um, and so I was really interested in ensuring that I had a good laparoscopic uh, experience. Coming to Queen's uh, probably not uh, an experience Similar to many of your uh, listeners, um, I basically applied to any job that was available um, in colorectal surgery. At the time, I think Queens was probably the only job in academic surgery, um, and so I was very fortunate to get the job here. And I, I actually hadn't had much familiarity with Kingston other than visiting some friends here from time to time. And so I, I don't know that what I was expecting is what happened, but uh, I've I really enjoyed here. I, I have a, a family, and this has just been an incredible experience for our family. It's a close-knit um, community, both the city and the um, uh, hospital and the university. So uh, a very welcoming place to be and, and I've just really enjoyed it here. So I've been very uh, fortunate to, to get a job here in Kingston.
2: Yeah, Kingston is such a lovely place. I remember going there as a, interviewing for medical school and watching these um, university students walk around the, the campus with like, the, you have these like patented Kind of football jackets that everybody wears that goes to queens i think um at least the, back when i was interviewing and and this this guy was like carrying this boom box on his shoulder and had his glasses on and it's like oh man this is this is an awesome city apparently it, they have like the highest capita per capita restaurants as well in kingston or some statistic like that
0: yeah well K- kingston's an interesting spot because it's a small city i think we're about one hundred thirty thousand or something like that but um, it tends to be a bit of a more touristy destination. It's kind of a historical city. So we we certainly, I think, punch above our weight in terms of the quality and the extent of restaurants we have. it has been really nice. And those football jackets, what they do is, I, I think if I'm right about this, is um, when they come in during the frost week, they're all given like a brand new leather jacket. And then they're supposed to kick it across campus without picking up with their hands, go so from like whatever wherever the school is to wherever they're living. And so what it does is guss up the leather and makes them kind of look old and faded. And I think that's a tradition that, I think it's engineering, but a, a number of um, uh, uh, kind of undergrad programs do that.
2: So, so you came back to Queens after doing this, you know, high-powered fellowship at uh, at in New York, and uh, I, I suspect no one was doing robotics when you came back. Is that is that right?
0: Yeah. So Queens and Kingston is a really nice place. So we're small enough that, you know, the general surgeons, the urologists, the gynecians, we we work closely together. There's not a huge number of us within colorectal, urology. So, what was really nice is you know there was no robot here at all when I when I came, and it became very apparent, especially especially from the urology side, that if they were going to maintain any of their prostatectomy practice and maintain really their their residency, um, they needed a robot. And and our hospital was quite motivated to keep um, Kingstonians local and and people in the southeast uh, region local, and felt that prostate cancer was a really important part of this, and so. The robot was actually brought in, I think it was, um, using me, the dates now, I think it was probably end of 2018, early of 2019 and it was a generous uh, donation from one of our long-standing uh, donors to KHSC that donated the robot as well as um, provided some kind of funding for uh, ongoing support. So when when I came here, there was really no expectation that there'd be robotic surgery, we were doing some other things with laparoscopic and me and whatnot. Um, but it was a really great um, uh, surprise to me that there's a lot of motivation to buy the robot, invest in the robot and invest in the program. And I think, you know, colorectal surgery was a huge beneficiary of this because the emphasis was on prostate, but the prostate guys generally would use the robot about a day or a day and a half a week. Um, And there's a lot of capacity for other services to get involved. And they knew that I had had robotic training. Um, They uh, were very supportive of our colorectal program. And so after prostate uh, became um, established, we were the next ones in, which was great because we had a lot of capacity to get on the robot. Um, I had had done robotic training and fellowship, but it had been a couple of years um, since I had done that. So it gave us time to get the cases and the training and the simulation in place so that we could kick off the program. Um, And I started it with my colleague, uh, Hugh McDonald, who's uh, been a colorectal surgeon here for many years. Uh, has, was doing laparoscopic uh, uh, rectal surgery, but really, I think with robotics has really taken off with that. So, it's been a it's been a fantastic ex- experience for us. Um, it's really shown, I think, the way that multiple services can work together. And we've done combined cases with gyne and colorectal, and whatnot. And so, it's been just a really great experience for us.
2: For our our listeners, can you just describe the mechanics of like actually what goes into actually building a uh... Robotics program, like you know, it's like it's not just about, for example, buying the robot. There's all these different pieces uh, that have to kind of come together. You know, in talking to one of uh, this the former Sir John fellows in Calgary, you know, he would talk about having all these uh, techs at Memorial Sloan Kettering that would just be there, dedicated to the robot, to ensure that you know that there was very minimal time in uh, in in transitions and and uh, in between cases and things like that and making sure things were working properly. So can you talk to us a little bit about the mechanics of how do you actually set up a robotic program?
0: Yeah. So the the most important thing is having the robot, <laughs> but in some ways that having someone buy the robot for your hospital is the simplest thing. Um, really, it's the personnel and the expertise that's just so imperative and uh, In Canada, the company that helps service the robot is different than Intuitive, which is the one that sells and makes the robot in the US. And really, this is a a venture kind of hand in hand, the clinicians and the hospital administration working with the uh, industry partnership and really what we were focused on was safe uh, rollout and efficient rollout of the robot. So we had a lot of simulation uh, training beforehand, just to make sure that everyone was up to speed in terms of just the mechanics of the robot from the surgeon standpoint. But we also had simulation and and in-servicing for our nursing staff. Um, What we thought was one of the most important parts for the successful implementation of our robotics program was having a dedicated group of nurses, which wasn't all the nurses. It was really nurses that were very motivated, liked the challenge of setting up a new program, and were really keen to see the success. And so we had a really strong nursing group that really took ownership of that and really made our life very, very easy, required support from the administration. Especially early on, uh, the cost of robotic instruments can be a bit daunting to some, um, especially when this is a new program where every cost is put under a microscope. And although we found that uh, the robotic cost may be not that different than our other minimally invasive techniques, it certainly was something that was spotlighted and our admin was very supportive in terms of committing to supporting us and ensuring the success of the program and with that is the volume of cases we need you, you can't do robotic surgery one one day a month and or one case a month and expect to get any proficiency from the certain side of the, day, the the spectrum or even the nursing staff so um, we had sufficient volume to support it we had dedicated or time which for us was often one or two days a week of robotic uh, cases and support from the admin that allowed us to run late if we were having some inefficiencies, they weren't canceling our last cases, they weren't canceling our robotic cases. So really, I think this was a really strong team effort. And a a really important component of that that was just preparing our whole team from the surgeons, the nursing staffs, to the uh, people in PCS cleaning instruments, just to make sure that they'd be successful in implementation of the robotics program. Pressure. to do this innovative uh, surgery because that would draw your patients and thus support your hospital and the funding for the hospital where as you know very well in Canada there is not that pressure. I find that our Canadian uh, patients by and large are, are quite deferential to the surgeons in terms of the techniques they want and although some people feel strongly about minimally invasive surgery I think there's an unfamiliarity with robotics so uh, my, my impression here, at least for colorectal surgery, was no one was demanding that we do robotic surgery for them or else they'd go elsewhere. And as you know, the robotic colorectal surgery was not being offered elsewhere. So there wasn't really the pressure to start robotic surgery because of um, market pressure. So what we kind of struggled in it initially, and I, and I think there's still a struggle, is showing what's the benefit of this technique um, and approach. Um, what's the clinical benefit to our patients? What's the benefit to the surgeons, perhaps, in terms of ergonomics? And what's the benefit to the uh, system itself in terms of savings and you know we we spent a lot of time talking about that and and our admin was a a bit uh reluctant and hesitant uh they they had an idea about you know capping the number of cases we would do for instance to try to reduce the cost and and it was really i thought the onus on us as the clinicians to show the benefits to the patients and to the system and Um, For us, what that meant was really developing metrics that um, our admin could take to whoever and show, and we could take to the administration and show the benefit to the patients in terms of length of stay, emergency department visits, which are often not captured in readmissions, which are very uh, costly. We want to show um, how successful we could be doing minimally invasive surgery. So we track kind of before and after cases in terms of what proportion of the patients were eligible for minimally invasive surgery, what proportions have went through without conversions. And then we started looking at cost data and, and probably Chad, as you know, and Amir, you know, it can be challenging in the Canadian institution to really get an accurate idea of costing data. We do the best we can um, in our hospital. And I think it's fairly accurate. And in fact, it probably overestimates the cost of robotics because there's such a spotlight on it. But we were able to show actually that, for us for our left-sided uh, resections, using robotic surgery has saved um, the hospital about a thousand dollars per patient after implementation and this was based on about two years worth of data so i, I think it was really important for us to show the metrics and kind of dispel the myth that you know there is no advantage for robotics over laparoscopic surgery there's no cost savings; in fact it's more costly i think the onus was on us to show the benefits in a number of different domains
2: so you know obviously you are had experience doing laparoscopic surgery i'm sure during residency, and then uh, obviously in fellowship, and we're doing that prior to robotics. Can you talk a little bit about what the big advantages you really see are? Because, you know, I think think many Canadian surgeons don't really actually have the chance to uh, to actually play with a robot or do any cases with a robot. So a lot of our kind of um, impressions about the robot are perhaps colored by all the things that you you were talking about before, where we sort of poo-poo American data because we think, well, you know people are really trying to uh, justify the use of the tool simply because they they want to have it anyways. So can you talk about you know, as someone who's sort of a, in a bit more objective place, um, what the advantages of the ro- the robot really are over laparoscopic surgery?
0: So we, we generally we exclusively use it for um, uh, left-sided uh, colorectal procedures. Um, so generally, low anterior sections APR would be the bulk of them, as well as uh, sigmoid resections in patients with complicated diverticulitis. That generally is our um, criteria. In terms of the advantages, so it's it's funny, and and probably you guys both know, you know, in our minds, we're all really incredible surgeons, and we have zero conversions and really low complication rates. You know that, and that was my impression too, and and. When I really started to look at our data, and what, what I did was I compared the two years before our robotic implementation to the two years after, I realized that kind of as our program, um, we were really only attempting about two out of three uh, rectal resections, minimally invasively, whether that was laparoscopic or laparoscopic TATME. Um, and our conversion rates were much higher than what I expected. And, and for us, we defined a conversion as kind of anything other than just spe- specimen extract- extractions. So if you Stapled, or if you took the pedicle or something through an open incision, we didn't we counted that as a conversion. And so we found that all in all, only about half of our patients with uh, rectal cancer were um, uh, going through and completing a minimally invasive procedure without conversion. And this is much lower than what I thought. With robotics, it it really takes that down substantially. So now less than 10% of our patients uh, don't have a successful minimally invasive surgery for a rectal cancer, which would mean starting and finishing either laparoscopic or robotically. Um, It really allows you to efficiently um, mobilize distally in the rectum. Um, As you know, as you're going through your fellowship, uh, that can be really challenging and time-consuming. The retraction you can get with the robot is incredible. Um, You know, I've heard it said before, and I believe it, but the uh, instruments that we use robotically retract the mesorectum in the same way that the St. Marks does in terms of the retraction, the exposure, and your ability to dissect, which I, I was never able to achieve laparoscopically. You're also able to work in tight spaces with a camera that, you know, is not causing a problems as you both know when you work in tight spaces often with a bit of fluid and gas and smoke your laparoscope is often getting smeared you know you may have the most, most junior person in the room running the laparoscope which often can be a bit challenging whereas with robotically this the operating surgeon controls the camera it's in a fixed point it's steady and it's a 3d picture um so what it's really allowed us to do is get very distal and very in a very kind of straightforward manner so um, you know, before, when I would see a patient with obesity, with a bulky, low tumor, and a male, especially with a, a narrow pelvis, I'd be quite stressed about whether I could complete it minimally invasively. If I was doing it through a TATME approach, that has its own challenges. And laparoscopically, I knew more likely than not I was converting. Now, I, I, I don't even think about conversions. Our, our conversion rate, for those that we start robotically, is less than 5%. Um, we have about 5% to 10% of our patients that uh, start open because of recurrent disease or recurrent pelvic separations or whatever. But I just don't have that stress anymore. And, and I just know that we're gonna have a very high chance of success doing of everything minimally invasively. Um, and I have to say, uh, we have a lot of uh, very skilled surgeons in the country and a lot of interest in TATME. One of the surgeons that uh, was a pioneer is Dr. Antonio Quesito. Who actually was recruited and started at, at Queens about a year ago, and he's done probably the highest volume amounts of TAHM. And he'll he'll talk about the challenges of THME, the learning curve. He's now um, primarily approaching most of his rectals uh, robotically. You know. He, I, I think he just finds it a bit more ergonomic, a little bit less stressful, and certainly it's a faster procedure. We still think there's a role for me and, and uh, we're very happy to have him here because he has a very really complementary skill set. But we find that there's just just so many advantages to the robotic platform, and it, it primarily relates to the articulation and the great view that you get and the ability to retract and see in a way that you just can't maintain laparoscopically.
2: So um, I have kind of two questions, and, and uh, I apologize to all our, all our listeners because this is the danger of having a colorectal fellow talk to a colorectal surgeon as you can really get down the weeds here. But so my, my first question is, when do you use TATME now, now that you have the robot? Because I think, you know, for, for a lot of people, this, these were sort of seen as uh, tools to deal with that problem of the distal rectum in a narrow pelvis. And so if you have one if you have both tools i'm curious when you use one versus the other and the second is you know everybody talks about these benefits of having the robot and and just watching the videos you can see how how easy you know the robot makes it look but that hasn't seemed to translate into outcomes when you look at the most of the studies on ro- robotics versus laparoscopic surgery at least the last time i checked why do you think there's that disconnect yeah so
1: in terms of um
0: the uh role for THME, I, 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 I think it's a complementary um, approach. And and as you know, THME, I think the biggest advantage of THME is you can definitively set your distal margin. You are not stressed that you know, you're know stapling across the cancer, or your distal margin isn't good enough. And I think that that's the role. And and that's how we envision uh, THME complementing robotic surgery is that you can do a great mobilization abdominally, um, robotically, and you can get very low. In fact, you can get intrasenteric routinely uh, from above and the vision we have is that TATME would complement that in the low patients where the margin can be challenging to identify and then you're concerned that you may risk a, a positive distal margin because of where it is and so our vision of, in terms of incorporating both and in, in what we're working towards right now is selective use of TATME almost exclusively to get the distal margin whereas most of the uh, almost all of the mesorectal dissection would have been done robotically. The other way we've used it is in patients that have had um, anastomonic complications after uh, LARs, especially distal anastomotic complications such as um, strictures or chronic sinuses or leaks. TATME is very uh, helpful in that setting. As you know, if you approach it abdominally, often you just tear the anastomosis apart, which can be unsalvageable. We've had had uh, probably about four or five patients now that have been referred to us where we've been able to basically use TATME um, techniques to get below the previous anastomosis, mobilize, and then use robotic surgery from above to get down to that same level, and that's allowed us to salvage low anastomosis, whereas previously we tended to have to do kind of completions and, and APRs uh, for those patients. So that that's kind of where we see the role, and I and I think TATME, reflects a skill set of uh, transanal surgery. And I think there will always be a role for TAMIS in terms of kind of early stage rectal cancers or, or large um, benign uh, polyps that you don't want to do a low interior for. So I think there's always going to be a role for that skill set. In terms of the data, you know, I see that same data. And I, I kind of questioned it in a way. And the way we looked at our data here was a bit different. So we didn't compare laparoscopic to robotic uh, surgery per se. and. The reason why is we thought that there was, and I think that there's a lot of selection bias to those who you select for laparoscopic surgery versus open surgery versus some sort of hybrid approach. And that was reflected in our practice pattern where about two thirds of patients were attempted laparoscopically and one third weren't. Robotically, as I told you, we were doing more than 90% of our patients robotically for rectal cancers. And so the selection bias there is pretty significant. And so I think those that are able to go laparoscopically versus those same group within Robotically, you know, you don't see much of a difference. The real difference, I think, is those that have the opportunity to have minimally invasive surgery. And in every center and program, I think that proportion of patients is gonna be different. And some centers, like where you're training, Amir, um, I think Carl Brown and, uh, um, and the rest of your faculty are very skilled at taking even challenging cases and doing everything minimally invasively. That wasn't me and that wasn't us. So I think the biggest benefit to robotic surgery is allowing a patient to have the opportunity to start and complete minimally invasive surgery. And we saw that advantage when we did uh, just a strict kind of historical cohort study. We found our average length of stay went from um, just over eight days to just uh, uh, around four days. Um, We saw readmissions to hospital drop dramatically by about half from I think it was 18 or 19 percent down to about 10 percent. And a lot of those readmissions were for wound complications and other kind of related complications. And we've, we've seen a lot less pain medication on the floor, uh, less hernia rates. And, and we've seen kind of earlier return to normal function for individuals. So just, you know, as you know, very well, people may go home the same day, but some patients take six weeks or longer to recover at home, whereas our robotic patients often they're um, back at their regular activities within a couple of weeks. And in fact, unlike my laparoscopic cases and and this may not be unique to to me. Is that we've had patients go through uh, low anterior resections um, or APRs and be home within a day or two, depending on their motivation, which I just wasn't seeing kind of before we started started robotic procedures. So, you know, I I see the advantage. I think most surgeons that have experience with robotic surgery can see the advantage. I, I recognize that the literature does it doesn't always come out, but I think especially in the trials, they're very selective about who gets enrolled in in the uh, trials. And I suspect that that's shading our, our uh, perceived outcomes um, because many of us cannot achieve the the outcomes that you see in those trials when we kind of look at our programs as a whole.
2: Well, yeah, I really appreciate that perspective and, and what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And certainly you have the data in at Queen's to, to back you up. You know, you've already kind of talked a little bit about the culture and the kind of team approach that you had with nursing and, uh, and, and everyone to kind of make this possible in administration. Talk to me a little bit about Uh, Or talk to us a little bit about your colleagues and sort of having that mindset uh, of trying to do things differently than perhaps the way they had done it before. Because that's not necessarily uh, easy to convince your colleagues that you should be trying something different, especially if that's not the way that they have been doing it for many years. And sort of the the second part of that is the how do you mitigate the learning curve associated with any new technique? Um, Because it does take a while to kind of. Uh, you know obviously you'd had some training in doing it but as an institution there's there's a learning curve and trying to figure this out so how do you kind of mitigate that when you're introducing a new technique
0: yeah so uh convincing colleagues here was easy um you know my partner uh hugh mcdonald um it was the two of us doing colorectal surgery uh, uh together and he didn't take much convincing i think you know he and and most people recognize the value of minimally invasive surgery but also recognize the challenges of trying to do things laparoscopically. We had actually, I think, maybe the bigger uh, uh, convincing was when we wanted to start it, when I wanted to start a TATME program here, which kind of preceded our robotic procedure um, uh, uh, by about a year and a half. Um, that was much more tr- much more trying. I think we were very selective and supportive of each other. Um, but even still, I think you know he kind of questions the value of this when we're working away for seven or eight hours doing a TATME versus kind of what well, he used to do in two and a half hours as an open procedure. But I, I think he recognized the value of, of this. And probably, as you know, anyone that gets on the robotic console, the simulation or, or kind of dry labs or, or cadaver labs, you instantly recognize the potential. And, and that's what he did. So we had simulation. We had uh, training down uh, in Atlanta. And, you know, once he got on the console, uh, he was basically hooked. And so it took no, no, um, uh, uh, convincing of him, and we were quite fortunate too, because he was the head of the division, so he he was also had served in an administrative role that was really supportive. So, you know, from a colleague standpoint, that was very helpful. I think one of the other things that were unique in in Kingston, in in, in a lot of ways, in that we're we work under an AFP, so we're not necess- we're not fee for service, and what that really allowed us to do was that uh, we made an effort, um, Dr. McDonald and myself, and now Antonio. Two of the three of us are in for every case, and I, I think that's experience is probably pretty similar to what you're seeing here in, in British Columbia um, with the THMEs, where you have two faculty scrubbing in together. And what that's allowed us to do is basically troubleshoot together. Um, it kind of doubles your experience, especially with the learning curve in terms of setup, port placements, instrumentation, techniques, and it also frees the resident from or trainee from being at the bedside. One of the emphasis that we had is that. And, and some experience I've had in the past was that trainees were put at the bedside to kind of pass instruments and sit there and perhaps be bored to death uh, during a four-hour surgery while the attending was working away. And you know, our trainees didn't want that. They didn't want to be bystanders. They wanted to be involved with the case. They they need to know the bedside, but they want to be on the console. And so having um, Dr. McDonald scrub with me or, or Dr. and be at the bedside has allowed our senior and chief residents to be at the console. and. You know, we have uh, two outgoing chief residents, Dave and Lisa, who both matched the colorectal fellowship and both had I, what I would say is significant uh, console time. So Dave told me, I think he was 20 or 30 cases at the console um, of rectal cancers. Um, and Lisa was probably around the same. And, and so I, I think that that was a big motivation for us as well. In terms of the learning curve, you're right, there's kind of like an institutional learning curve and a surgeon led learning curve. Robotic surgery, you can progress through the learning curve, I think, much quicker than you can for other techniques. Going open to laparoscopic is, I think, a big step. Laparoscopic to THC is a huge step. Going from laparoscopic to robotic surgery is not that big. Um, And the reason why is the approach is the same, the planes are the same, um, uh, how you do your dissection is similar, um, except it's easier. Uh, the learning curve primarily re- revolves around port placement, instrument selection, and just trying to be efficient in that way. And that's something that uh, we spent a lot of time talking to others, including people such as Mark Solomon, and, uh, and uh, just trying to kind of learn that. And so we felt that the learning curve here was probably not as steep as some other places. And that actually we progressed through fairly quickly. And I think it was just really valuable for us to both be on the on the in the OR at the same time, helping each other and just kind of doubling our experience, uh, which I, I think also progresses through the learning curve well. So I, you know, I, I think that this was a great technique. And, and the reality is we always had a bailout for our robotic procedure and that we could always go back to the laparoscopic or open or whatever we were more comfortable with. So spin, um, so kind of the de- definition of spin in, in my mind, and I wasn't the one that defined this. This has been worked on uh, previously. Is is either um, intentional or unintentional uh, misrepresentation of your trial results or study results. And and what what this means is is generally you're you're overselling what you're, you found. I uh, became interested in this topic uh, when I was in my epidemi- epidemiology school. Because we were going through what trials looked like and the ethics of trials and how to report trials and studies. And most of their examples came from the medical literature, not the surgical literature. Um, And they were very critical over how things were interpreted. And then I would go and look at a study. And at the time I was obviously interested in colorectal surgery. I'd look at studies looking at laparoscopic surgery for Crohn's disease. And they'd have like 12 patients. And then the, the conclusions for it were just totally like overstating the safety and the efficacy and and the benefits based on such a small amount of patients that really there was no comparison group and so i thought to myself well like you know they think this is a problem medical literature i i'm I'm interested in seeing how this looks in in surgery specifically surgery that i'm interested in so the first uh paper on spin i did was looking at laparoscopic gi surgery which really for me was things like laparoscopic small bowel resections right colon sigmoid resections etc
1: and what i did was i um
0: hold uh, uh, all the trials that looked at uh, comparing laparoscopic to open surgery over about a 20 year period. um, And I think it was about 60 or or so trials that kind of fit that uh, criteria. looked at ones that really they didn't show any difference in in whatever outcome they're most interested in, which tended to be things like length of stay complications. And I wanted to see, you know, are, are these studies just saying, okay, well, we've shown that laparoscopic and open surgery are about equivalent or we haven't seen any differences or, or are they overstating their uh, results? And it, it was very common to see that things were being overstated studies of kind of 20 or 30 patients with 15 in each group claiming that, you know, we've shown equivalency of technique, even though there was no equivalency definition or talking about the benefits, uh, like mortality benefits because they had like a, a statistically significant outcome. So I, I what I want to do is kind of highlight that I, I I, it's not that I disagree that I think there's benefits to laparoscopic surgery. It was that I think we do a disservice to ourselves by overstating the facts in a way that are clearly easily able to be disproven. So what when I started doing these spin articles, what I was trying to highlight is that we can report our study results objectively and honestly. And that doesn't negate what we're trying to say, which is that there is the potential for great benefit for new and innovative surgical techniques. And I I think we're seeing this in, you know, a lot of techniques like I'll use TATME as an example. I think there's great uh, promise to TATME. I think there are excellent surgeons that perform TATME with great results. But in some ways, we did a disservice because these results were emphasized. And I think a lot of people went through and started doing TATME that didn't have the proctoring that they required, didn't have the volume they required and started to have poor outcomes, which then resulted in things like moratoriums on the use of the technique in some uh, settings. So, that's kind of the, the 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 mind frame I had when it when I started looking at all these things. And one of the things I like about these spin articles. So I did a spin article on laparoscopic surgery, spin article on robotic surgery, and a spin article on TATME. And I presented them at our uh, international and national meetings. And each time I've been accused of bias. So first I had bias against laparoscopic surgery. Then I had bias against robotic surgery in favor of laparoscopic surgery. And then I had bias in, in favor of TATME versus robotic surgery. So. I I felt that if I uh, pissed off everyone, then I must be doing something right, and and that must demonstrate that I'm I'm actually an objective person. SPIN, you know, it was defined in a paper uh, published, I think, like, more than 10 or 15 years ago, and there was a number of, like, domains, and it was things like, so we tried to do objective identification of SPIN, so it was things like focused on secondary outcomes as opposed to the primary outcome. Uh, focusing on one of multiple outcomes, ignoring all the other outcomes that really showed no difference. Or in spite of non significance claiming there was a benefit or a trend. Um, so there was like a multiple domains about how...
2: When you define the, the, the term spin, or like when you're looking for spin, is that a subjective kind of like, oh, well, I think you're kind of stretching the conclusions. How do you kind of standardize the the definition of of spin, because uh, I thought you did a really good job of that in, in those papers. Studies are interpreted
0: that they kind of defined as spin being positive or negative. Um, and so that's what we try to stick with. Um, I think there's always some subjective nature uh, in identifying this. So, you know, in our studies we kind of had the mind frame like you would for a, a meta-analysis where we had a couple of reviewers try to look for agreements and disagreements and, and came up that, um, to that, to conclusions that way. Um, but there is always a, a kind of a bit of a subjective assessment of this, whether SPIN exists or not. Yeah, and so, yeah, we found high rates of SPIN in all those, so like 60 to 70%, I believe, of all the studies we looked at in each domain uh, had some evidence of SPIN. You know, what after I did these, I, I kind of concluded in my head, I said to myself, well, I, I don't think there's any role for an introduction or a discussion or conclusion for any trial. I think what you should put on is the methods and the results and that everyone else should interpret uh, the trial themselves. Obviously that's not like totally possible. I think there's certainly a role for abstract introductions discussions. You know, you want an interpretation of this. And I think we have to also accept that we can be easily misled. There was a really nice study by the original authors uh, that kind of came up with this. And what they did was a randomized trial of um, physicians. And they randomized 150 positions to getting an abstract uh, with spin. And 150 physicians to gain abstract without spin. And it was the same study, the same kind of results, everything was written out, up exactly the same except they put spin in one versus the other. And there was much higher proportion of uh, those um, that got the spin article thinking that there was benefit to whatever they were, uh, whatever the intervention was, despite the fact that it was pretty clearly laid out that there was no difference between the two techniques. And so I think one of the things we have to be aware of, and, and um, I think this this term has been thrown around a lot, is we have we have a lot of biases in terms of what we believe to be true. And when we read an article that reaffirms our biases, we accept that as gospel. And if we read an article that doesn't, we kind of say, well, we pick it apart and say why it's not not to be trusted.
1: So I think as
0: you know, physicians, surgeons, clinicians, I think we when you're reading a, a, a study, I think you have to accept that you know. Part of this is your interpretation. Part of this is what the authors have told you is their interpretation. And I think you really got to get back to the um, methods. Do the methods, do the conclusions match the methods and the results? And I think, you know, we have to continue to be skeptical about, especially for things that seem to be too good to be true because often they
1: are. I think that's beautifully said, you know, as as one of the editors of Canadian Journal of Surgery, this is a really obviously important topic, for not only us, but but all journals and all editors. I'm curious, what, what do you think journals can do to protect themselves a little bit from the potential for spin other than, you know, vigorous peer review? And um, it's interesting you know, to hear you talk about publishing, perhaps just the methodology and the, and the results, but, uh, you know, uh, outside of that, which is certainly very interesting as a concept, what, what else would you recommend for us to uh, keep the ship straight? Yeah.
0: You know, it's, it's, it's challenging, I think, because, you know, I I write articles and I, and I, You know you write your articles for the reviewers and the editors to look and say what you've done is important and different and inherent in that is often kind of selling your work and part of selling your work is generally kind of putting a bit of a spin on it um so i I think there's a role for that like the context may not always be obvious and and as an author of these papers you want to provide context and context and, and importance of your work i think it's really prudent for the Journal editors and reviewers to really focus on the abstract and the conclusions, you know, as you know, well, Chad, I think 90% of the people that read these articles really read the abstract and that's about it. So I think the abstract really needs to be a focus of being objective. I think it's really, you know, the editors and reviewers of these artists can really um, push that and, and say, you know, your conclusions really have to be toned down. Um, we can't overstate our conclusions. You can make the case during your introduction and discussion, but the conclusions, the abstracts really has to be objective and reflect the actual findings. And, and I think that that's at least one solution in my mind. You know, as I say, uh, trying to get your work published, you you want to publish your work, you spent a lot of time on it, you think it's important. I think it's just inherent in all of us to try to sell it and perhaps oversell it. And um, the reviewers, I think, accepting that, you know, it's fine to have a study that, provides, you know, you know, there's no difference in the outcome. There's no there's nothing groundbreaking here other to say that perhaps these are, you know, there's no there's no safety concerns with this new technique. There's, um, you know, it's it's perhaps just as good as something else. And that question still um, uh, exists. And, and that's why we when we make a, a decision about practice guidelines and standard of care, we don't just look at one study, we look at lots of studies and these studies can provide insight into that. So I, I don't know I'm I'm sure Chad you've had that those discussions when you review your articles or or when you're looking to see whether it's the final version of a publication but that, that those are kind of some of the suggestions I would have
1: yeah that's well said and, and food for thought for sure he, you know a lot of what you're talking about really I think is is a granular analysis it's a detailed time in the, in your seat paying attention to all these features of, of peer review and of, of submissions but you're you're right of course that you know the vast majority of folks browse through that abstract and and that's oftentimes where where it's left you know the probably the the uh, the epitome or the the pinnacle maybe it's a better way to say it of, of a thirty thousand foot drive by though is really the proliferation of visual abstracts and i don't want you to get the impression or anyone to get the impression that i that i don't like them in fact we're going to bring them the canadian journal surgery uh, um, amir is well down that road um uh, thankfully in doing that so i think they're important and they're helpful for many reasons but I'm curious in that exact regard, and in particular with the construction of them, with regard to spin and maybe the the superficial message at the end of it. What, what's your impression of visual abstracts, and how do you see them as helping or hurting?
0: Well, like like you, I I, I love visual abstracts. I think they add a lot. You know, it's it, it's so nice to you know do a presentation and put someone's visual abstract on a, a publication that you want to kind of reference, as opposed to the boring like full title with authors and everything. I think there's such a, there's a nice way to demonstrate a quick hit on uh, what this study looked at what they found um and what it means I, I i think i think they're really great and they fit perfectly kind of in the um, um uh promotion of a journal and the authors uh, especially on social media but the the issue with them is not unique to medical literature it's it's kind of the twitter 140 characters or whatever it is now is it's such a superficial look at, at what potentially could be a complex topic. And I I think we've all seen on social media, the proliferation of kind of misinformation, uh, misinterpretation of what was said with like in one sentence, um, you know, people getting themselves in trouble or being upset with others because something was stated in a way that wasn't clear. Um, So I I think visual abstracts are certainly a really nice complement to Our literature and a great way to promote um, something that might be interesting to others but I you know I think what we really need to stress is visual abstract is kind of the interest point, so that you click on the the link to the article that gives you the details that you need to kind of say yeah I I agree or disagree Um, but you know you are right they've been criticized in a way but I, I think I think they're just really great I'm on Twitter I love seeing visual abstracts it's often I, I may skip through and, and miss other articles that could be just equally interesting but with the visual abstract you, you get the sense right away about something whether it's what you're interested or not and i think it leads to you know you reading the article in more detail so i, I actually think they're like a net positive but certainly you're right they, they have their own limits
1: yeah i agree in, in, in entirely i think they can be very powerful when they're when they're with thought and, uh, and um, uh, effort for sure. You, you know, the other thing we know you're very interested in, which is really obviously timely, like so much of the things that you do, um, is the concept of conflict of interest on editorial boards in surgical journals. And I'll maybe preface the, the first part of the question um, with, and I, you're probably aware of it, but in the past two years or so, since the real equity, uh, public equity push, Really, all of the journals, the peer-reviewed journals um, of, of record, certainly in North America and some in Europe, have really not only come up with white papers and and made a push to try and meet that that target and some of those goals, but you know we've really tried to redesign our editorial boards to to reflect more equity. Now that can be a, a um, an easier or a less easy experience, quite frankly, depending on your readership your country and your your population obviously in the us you have a lot more folks to draw from the culture is quite different academically in terms of drive and effort than say canada but uh not as an excuse but they certainly are are different so i'm curious how you view um you know conflicts of interest uh in that in that context
0: yeah so i think first of all we have to admit that we all have conflicts of interest in anything we do whether it's financial or you know you've invested time into something that you believe in um you're going to support it uh, so conflicts of interest are just inherent in everything we do I, but i think it's also important to accept that we do have these conflicts of interest and and that we need to be transparent about it so you know the the conflicts of interest papers i've done have looked at undeclared conflicts of interest, which is where I think the problem lies, where if you have an obvious financial undeclared conflict of interest, th- th- there's an issue there. You, you have motivations to support and recommend or conclude certain things based on your potential financial conflict of interest. And, and to me, conf- financial conflicts of interest are often criticized when I did this work um, in that, oh, the value is low. You know, it's $8,000. This surgeon makes half a million bucks. How can that possibly uh, affect his decision making? But it does, because if, if a company gives you eight thousand um, bucks, you have a relationship. There's probably more to it than just the financial conflict of interest. And I think it's important that we are able to see that if you're making recommendations or conclusions, or you're the gatekeeper for publications, it's important to know where those conflicts lies and and to try to recognize whether those conflicts are impacting what what we're saying and what we're doing. So I think you know it. It's a challenge, uh, I, I, I think, and I, I think sometimes you have a situation where everyone has a conflict of interest, even financially, and it, it can be very challenging. I've seen a lot of work on this in, um, you know, NCCN guidelines, where you, you see these substantial conflicts of interest. And if someone publishes or this NCCN guideline gets accepted, uh, my understanding is that often you can get whatever drug is recommended in that uh, funded by Medicaid and Medicare in the state, and and that that's a financial incentive for these. Pay to potentially be um, influenced. So um, I, I see it as a problem in a way, uh, but I also see it as a, a problem that hopefully can continue to be improved upon. The Americans have the Sunshine Act, which makes it basically I can search any American physician and see exactly how much financial conflict of interest they may have. I know there was some talk about doing the same in, in Canada. I think that that would be helpful. Um, I'm not sure where Europe is on that standpoint, but I. I think transparency is what we need i think we all accept that um, we have conflicts of interest and we have relationships and often the relationship with industry is beneficial both to the industry they're making a profit but also to the patients um, a lot of innovation within surgery wouldn't have happened without that financial motivation by the company minimally invasive surgery for instance like we've had huge huge uh, steps forward with that and that's been with industry partnerships so I think I see these as things that are going to continue. I hope that there'll be more transparency. And I I, I really would like to see that um, uh, we accept that uh, we could be, you know, a bit biased in what we're saying because of these conflicts.
2: right yeah i think that there's no way to kind of get around uh, around that but uh, i i'd probably argue that you that there's way more spin than we even want to admit or that you even found in 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 those studies cuz those were like looking at trials we we didn't even look at all these cohort studies or retrospective you know case report type things those are even worse right so uh, i suspect that like the amount of spin in surgical literature is enormous so given you know what your findings which uh, just to summarize you found spin in in all three domains tatme laparoscopic surgery and robotic surgery so so given this amount of spin what advice do you have for readers uh, uh of, of surgical literature um, for avoiding or not getting misled by spin
0: yeah well i you know i, I think i think it's almost impossible to be impartial if we're if you're working very closely with industry to develop what you believe is a device or an approach that you think will be better beneficial for your patients i think you'll be an advocate for that device i think transparency is what's important i think we would all accept a study that said you know this this new device has shown great benefits here they are and at the, the declaration that i worked with the company and i received funding from the company to help develop that and we'd say in our interpretation of that study, we'd say, well, we got we got to shade it a little bit. This person clearly has um, a relationship with the company, but it doesn't totally uh, dismiss what's being said. Um, and then it goes back to reproducibility. Are are those follow-up studies showing the same benefit? Um, so, I I I see that partnerships between industry and and clinicians and surgeons especially are a requirement for innovative care. Like I don't know how a industry partner would develop a new device without input from the surgeons that are going to use it. Um, So, but I think we just need to be transparent about uh, when we are receiving funding and and accepting that that may shade our conclusions and perhaps getting someone more objective to assess your device would perhaps be a bit better than the person that's helped develop it. That, that, that would kind of be my impression. Um, But it it is, it is a kind of an ongoing complex topic. And I know there's a lot of very strong opinions about this one way or the other.
2: Well, it's been an absolutely Fascinating and, and delightful discussion with you uh, this morning. So we really appreciate your time uh, and, and on all your thoughts. And, and hopefully we'll see more of these cool, innovative kind of, kind of studies coming out from you in the, in the near, near future. So, so we really appreciate it. One of the questions that we, we try to ask most of our guests on the show is, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a as a trainee or even as a uh, early attending, what would that advice be?
0: Yeah, that- that's a, that's a really uh, great question. I guess one of the things that I would try to tell myself, especially in medical school and early training, is that as a Canadian, often we see the world as Canada. You know, most people we know are either immigrated to Canada or born in Canada, in Canada, they did their medical school in Canada, they did training in Canada, and they work in Canada. the The world is so much bigger than that. And for me, my my most valued experiences was when I lived in the UK uh, doing a grad degree and when I went to fellowship in the US. And so what I would tell myself kind of looking back is I I would say, look for more of those opportunities. I I suspect, you know, international electives into wherever would have been, I would have really enjoyed those. Um, I think, you know, partnering or collaborating with people that are doing really exciting work internationally, I I think I, I, I wasn't able to do those kinds of things. Um, and getting mentorship from people that are more than just Canadian is very helpful. And that, that's not to say that I don't value the men- mentorship and the training I got in Canada. I, I think that was invaluable to me but you know to me the world is such a big place and people are doing such interesting things all over the world. I think it's just to me I would really enjoy having more of those
1: experiences.
2: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. This podcast was edited and produced by Tyler Daniels. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at canjsurge. Thanks again.